0: A few years ago, I came across an article online about a married couple from Texas who became semi-famous. They went viral for their incredibly unusual pet. Any guesses as to what kind of pet they had living in their home with them? Lizard. Tiger. Lizard. Tiger. Pretty good. Okay, I have a picture. Here it is. So this is their 2,500 pound pet buffalo. His name is Wild Thing, which is awesome. And he eats meals with them, he watches TV with them, he opens presents with them on Christmas morning. And when I read this article, I thought the same thing that all of you are thinking right now. Ridiculous, unless you're Pat. And Pat's thinking, awesome, how do I get one? (laughs) I wanna get a pet buffalo. (sighs) But it's ridiculous. You can't have a 2,500 pound buffalo living inside your house. Have you guys ever seen the size of a pile of buffalo manure? (laughs) That'd be a pretty serious whoops. I mean, if that thing's not potty trained, you're going to have some problems. So it's an absolutely ridiculous situation, but it serves as a great illustration of a principle that ties many of Paul's points in Romans chapter one together. And the principle is this, Things work best when they're used according to their design. Things work best when they're used according to their design. This principle is universal. It applies to almost anything you can think of. So if you try to use a spoon to cut your sirloin steak, that's not going to go very well because that's not what a spoon is designed to do. If you try to play basketball, shoot jump shots and dribble, with a football, that's not gonna go very well because that is not what a football is designed to do. And if you try to snuggle on the couch with a full-grown bull buffalo, it's not going to work well. Things work best when they operate, when they function according to their design. And the same is true for human beings. Just like spoons and footballs, you have been made. Do you know that? You have a creator, and God, your creator, he made you with a specific purpose. He designed you with a specific function in mind, which is a big part of what Paul is describing in Romans chapter 1. We're going to break this down into three parts this morning. First, God's design for, huma- or for creation. Second, God's design for humanity. And third, the violation of God's design. Much of this is going to build on our study from last week, this section of Scripture. So if you were not here for that, I would definitely recommend that you go back and listen to that sermon if you get a chance later in the week. But first, God's design for creation. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We just got done studying Genesis last year. So you're probably familiar with this passage It goes on to say that God created the light and the darkness He created the oceans and the sky He created the plants and the stars the birds and the fish. He created all the animals On the land and lastly he made people Almost everyone is familiar with that story in the beginning. God created the universe But why did he do it? What was the purpose of the creation? Paul doesn't say this explicitly in Romans chapter 1, but it is heavily implied. It's almost assumed back in verse 20. Romans 1.20 says, For His invisible attributes, talking about God, that is, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what He has made. Here's the point. The ultimate purpose of the entire universe, all of creation, is to glorify God. It is to magnify Him. It is to point to Him. It's to show who He is and what He's like. Now, obviously, that's an oversimplification. Because the universe is extremely complex. All of God's designs are extremely, almost mind-bogglingly, intricate. And so on a basic level, you can look at a bird and say, well, a bird is designed to fly in a way that I am not. And a fish is designed to swim and breathe underwater. And so it's an oversimplification. But all of it is meant to magnify and glorify God. That's its underlying, most fundamental, ultimate purpose. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. The entire universe is designed by God to proclaim His glory. And the psalmist says the stars, the, the stars, like they, they nonstop, they're communicating the glory of God. And they're not doing it. They don't actually have rational minds. They don't use words but their very nature, they can't help it. They just declare his glory, his power, his divinity. And remember, in this text, Paul is explaining why the wrath of God is aimed at humanity. Why are people unrighteous? Why are people going to hell? According to Paul in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, for though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. All of creation is designed to glorify God. And even what Paul writes in verse 20, it is a description of God's glory. That's part of what it is. It's a description of God's glory. His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world. What Paul is arguing is the fact that anything exists at all. The fact that anything exists at all and that we can observe it, we can interact with it, it's proof of God's existence. That's what he's saying. And he's essentially making a point that modern philosophers have expounded on. He's he's giving a simplified version of two modern arguments. One is called the cosmological argument, the other is called the teleological or the fine-tuning argument. We don't have time to explain them, but you can Google that. Cosmological argument, teleological argument for God's existence. And what those philosophical arguments say is basically that the existence and nature of the universe proves God's existence. The fact that there's anything at all, and the fact that it is the way that it is, the universe is incredibly fine-tuned. So all of the laws of physics and nature, so matter, energy, space, time, if that was not uniquely calibrated the way that it is mathematically, you couldn't have life. You couldn't have galaxies. You couldn't have the formation of stars and planets. This is what modern philosophers and scientists have discovered. And this is exactly what Paul is saying, is that the existence and nature of the universe prove, you don't have to call him God, but it, it proves that a being exists who must be eternal. There must be an eternal being. He exists outside of and is unbound by time. In order to bring time into existence, he cannot be bound by or exist within time. This being must be omnipresent. He exists outside of and is unbound by space and matter. This being must be omnipotent. He has infinite power over and beyond the universe. This being must be omniscient. He has infinite knowledge over and beyond the universe, and he must be creative. So he has both the power and the will to create the universe. This is what Paul is saying is that for the universe to exist at all, a being who has at least these character traits must exist. And that is a description of who God is. And that's a powerful argument. You can learn all of those things about God by simply observing the world around you. But, if that was the only argument for God's existence, then why not the God of Buddhism? Or the gods of Hinduism? Or the God of Islam? or the God of the Latter-day Saints, or the ancient Greeks, or the Romans. just There's a God, or gods, that exist. But the Bible tells us that God is not only all-powerful and eternal, he's also loving. He's good. It tells us that God is one. There's not many gods, there's one God. And he's personal, he's just, he's holy, he's righteous. He draws near to his creation, particularly people and you can have a relationship with him. He's not distant, he's not indifferent, like Allah or the gods of the Romans. All of that is true about God, but you can't learn any of that by simply looking at the world around you. There's only one place where you can learn those things about God's character and nature, and that is by looking at the Gospel. Which brings us to our next point, which is God's design for humanity. Why did God create people? What, what is the purpose of your existence? Why do you exist? Genesis 1, 26. On the last day, sixth day of creation, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them Male and female. What is God's design for you? Number one, people like the rest of creation are made to glorify God. Just like the birds and the fish and the stars, you have been made to glorify God. But you play a unique and much more important role than the birds or the stars or the trees. Human beings alone are made in God's image. So, all the rest of creation, the grass and the mountains and the oceans and the galaxies, they demonstrate, they clearly proclaim God's eternal power and divine nature. But only human beings bear his image, his likeness, his personality, his character. It's our second point. People uniquely bear God's image. <clears throat> and what this means is human beings alone possess God's. Attributes of love and kindness and goodness and mercy and compassion and justice and self sacrifice. Human beings alone in all of the universe are creative and relational like God. Not to the same degree that He is, but this is how we know God is loving and good and just. It's because we can see it in relationships with other people. We can see little glimpses of His goodness and His love and His justice. Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians that these traits of God are specifically revealed in the relationship between husband and wife, which is amazing. He's quoting Genesis 2. This is right after the creation account in Genesis 1, before the fall, before the entrance of sin into the equation. In Ephesians 5.31, he quotes Genesis 2. He says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. There's a lot there. That would take a long time to explain in depth, but essentially... What Paul is getting at is the first man and woman together were designed to glorify and image God's relational love and goodness in the context of marriage. That's what he's saying. And his creative power, they were designed to image his creative power through the ability to have children and populate the earth. And Paul says that it is through the husband and wife in marriage that God shows us the kind of relationship he wants to have with us like a loving husband who lays down his life for his wife. God wants to serve you. God wants to protect you. God wants to provide for you. God wants to cherish you. This is who God is. And we see that through his original design for humanity. Third aspect to God's design for human beings, people uniquely glorify God through worship. Through worship. Again, this is assumed in Paul's reasoning. He says the wrath of God is revealed against people. So God originally designed people for His love, for relationship with Him, for His affection, but instead, Paul says they have His wrath, they have His judgment. Why is that? What went wrong? Verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever amen so what paul is getting at is that you were designed for worship this is why you were made god made you to worship and to serve him it's why you exist now If I had a whiteboard up here on stage and we called some of you up here and I gave you a dry erase marker, how many of you could write out a definition of worship? What is worship? Because if that's why you exist, if you exist to worship and serve God, we better know what worship is. I'm going to give you the Oxford definition. Oxford's probably my favorite dictionary. Don't write this down. But here's the Oxford definition of worship. The feeling or expression of reverence and adoration for a deity. Now, I don't think that's wrong necessarily, but it is woefully inadequate. There is so much that gets left out, the feeling or expression of reverence and adoration for a deity. According to the Bible, worship is much more than that. According to the Bible, there are three aspects of worship. Did that on purpose. (laughs) Make sure you guys are awake. Yeah three aspects of worship. The first is love. The first aspect of worship is love or affection. The Lord Jesus says in Matthew 22 verse 37, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. Worship is love. Worship is affection. Worship is the thing you get excited about, the thing that you cherish, the thing that you're passionate for, you're enthusiastic about. It's the thing you make sacrifices in other areas of your life for because you deem it as more valuable. This is my thing. This is the thing I'm excited about. This is the thing I will clear my schedule for to have or to do or to experience. Worship is love. Secondly, worship is trust. Trust. Proverbs 3 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. Worship is trust. Worship is the thing, the activity, the person that you look to for security, the thing that makes you feel sta- safe or stable, the thing you look to for direction. And solidarity it's the thing you look to for comfort and guidance it's the thing you remain committed to even when it's difficult because you know man this is worth it this is my thing <laughs> this is the thing I, I, I've got to stay connected to and grounded in it's trust thirdly worship is obedience or service again Romans 1 they worshiped and served created things Romans 12.1, Paul says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. That's the New American Standard translation. Your spiritual service of worship. Worship is obedience. Another way to think about this is is worship is when you will do whatever is required to have the thing that you want to worship. You just do whatever it takes. There's so much in our lives like this. You just are going to do whatever it takes. And so worship involves your priorities. It involves how you spend your time. It involves how you spend your money. It involves what you will do and what you won't do. Your actions, your behaviors, your decisions, what you sacrifice for. And so if you put those three concepts together, here's my definition of worship based on all the biblical data. Worship is love, trust, and obedience directed toward an object, activity, idea, or person. That's, I think, a, a more complete picture of worship. It is love, trust, and obedience directed toward an object, activity, idea, or person. And it's why you exist. You exist. You were made to glorify God by worshiping him And by loving other people around you the way that he loves you Which is just a byproduct of worship when you worship God when you love God when you're excited about God and committed to God Then that is going to pour forth into loving people the way he loves them It's just a natural byproduct of it. But when you observe the world around us Is that what you find? you just find a, just a society, globally and locally, full of faith-filled, joyous worshipers of God? Definitely not. And this is the problem that Paul is identifying in Romans 1, which brings us to our third point, which is the violation of God's design. Remember, this is why you were made. You were created by God to worship Him, which means you can't stop worshiping even if you wanted to, even if you tried to, you will love, trust, and serve something. You will glorify something. The only question is, who or what is it going to be? Paul says, you only have two options. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever in other words there are only two categories for your worship only two creator or creation only two categories for your worship creator or created you will either worship God or you will worship something else and your only other option is something that God has made something inside of the universe the bible calls this idolatry i think we often think of idolatry as worshiping a golden statue something like that something very archaic very ancient this is something that ignorant peoples of old did and certainly that is a form of idolatry but it is much broader than that idolatry could be anything so people whose lives are entirely oriented around money and possessions do you know anyone like that that's a form of idolatry. The thing that they are passionate about and love and put their, all their trust in for security, the thing that they make sacrifices for and serve and labor and run after is money and possessions. And that's become their God. People whose lives are oriented around their career are practicing idolatry. People whose lives are oriented around pleasure or entertainment or hobbies are practicing idolatry. And even people whose ultimate source of security, meaning, fulfillment is their family? When the thing you love most and serve most and trust in most is your family, that is a form of idolatry. If it replaces God. Let me ask you a very important question. What do you really love most? Do you ever think about this? What are your thoughts just kind of drift towards in a brief moment of downtime? What's the thing you daydream about to find comfort and hope? Man, at least I'm gonna get this at the end of the week. What do you really love most? What is your hope, your trust really in? What is the thing that you really serve? Where's the best of your effort go to? The bulk of your hours? Your emotional energy? What are you worshiping in your life right now? That's a very important question. Tim Keller passed away a few months ago, and he wrote quite a bit on the idea of worship and idolatry. And he says this, which I think is very insightful. Rather than stealing from him, I'm just going to quote him. He says the 10 commandments begin with two commandments against idolatry. Then come commandments 3 through 10. Why this order? It is because the fundamental problem in lawbreaking is always idolatry. In other words, we never break commandments 3 through 10 without first breaking 1 and 2. We will either worship God or other things. We cannot eliminate God Without creating God substitutes, something will capture our hearts and imaginations and be the most important thing to us. Our ultimate concern, value, and allegiance. So every personality, community, and thought form will be based on either God himself or on some God substitute, an idol. This means that idolatry is ultimately the reason for all wrongdoing. Why do we ever lie or steal or covet? Of course, the general answer is because we are weak and sinful, but the specific answer is always because there is something besides Jesus Christ that we feel we must have to be happy. Something that is more important to our hearts than God. Something that is enslaving our hearts through inordinate desires. All our failures to trust God wholly or to live rightly are rooted in idolatry, something we make more important than God. Therefore, in sin, we are always forgetting what God has done for us and instead are being moved by some idol. That is so powerful when you begin to understand that. Because what I know is all of us struggle with sinful behavior at times. And it's going to look different for everyone. You have things that trip you up. Maybe it's your anger. Maybe it's a complaining or grumbling spirit. Maybe it's lust, sexual immorality. Maybe it's laziness. Maybe it's unforgiveness. And you have all of, these, all of these struggles, and you think, man, I know that's wrong. I know it's wrong when I yell at my kids. You know, I know it's wrong when, when I look at somebody to lust after them and you don't want to do it, but you find yourself stuck in patterns of sin, it is so helpful to know that's just a symptom. There's, a, there's something deeper in your heart. Very likely there is something that is more important to you, more exciting to you, more valuable to you than God himself. Why is idolatry so devastating? Because look at the trade people are making. This is, it, it's shocking. Paul makes it so potent in Romans chapter 1. Paul says it's an exchange that is being made. He says that people exchange the glory of the immortal God for images of creatures. And maybe in our setting, it's for iPhones, or Xboxes, or cars, or homes. We exchange the glory of the immortal God who created the universe for this little thing that you can put in your pocket or that you can hang on your wall or that you can park in your garage. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. They exchange the creator of the universe for his creation. C.S. Lewis wrote this in an essay called The Weight of Glory. He said, we are half-hearted creatures Fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us Like an ignorant child Who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine What is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea? We are far too easily pleased This is why this is why broken worship misplaced worship is so devastating Because God says, you can have me. You were designed to know me. You were designed to worship and serve me. And we trade that. You think about the Israelites. In the desert, Moses goes up on the mountain to speak to God, to deliver the very words of God to the people. He's gone for 40 days. And what do they do? They make a golden statue of a baby cow out of their own jewelry, and they say, this is now God. We're going to worship this. We're going to be most excited for this. We're going to sacrifice for this. We're going to put all our hope in this thing that we made. It's so offensive to God. And it's it's so harmful for people. You're putting your trust in something that can never deliver you. You're looking to something for joy that can never give it to you. You're looking to something for life that has no life. What's the result? Verse 26. For this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. Okay, what's going on here? Three times, Paul says, God delivered them over. It's a progression. God delivered them over, first, to sexual impurity, second, to homosexuality, and third, to a corrupted mind. And one question that comes up here often is why does Paul focus in on sexual immorality and specifically homosexuality? I think oftentimes those become a distraction. It kind of jumps off the page like, whoa, what is that doing here? And this is why I wanted to focus so much on God's design through creation, because this is why this is when you understand this, it makes what Paul is saying make perfect sense. And it is because sexual immorality and homosexuality represent the exact opposite of God's design. That's that's Paul's point. Look again, verse 18. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What is the truth? Well, the truth is that God is a loving, committed, covenant God. He he wants to enter into a covenant relationship with you. And instead of self-sacrificial covenant love, which is what is imaged in marriage between a man and a woman, sexual immorality images selfish lust. It mars the image of God. It confuses people about who He is and what He's like. What about homosexuality? I think it's pretty clear Paul considers homosexuality worse than heterosexual sin. And that's not to say that sexual immorality in all its forms is not terrible and sinful and damning. Of course it is. But this is it's like a next step in Paul's argument here. Why does he consider it worse? Well, I think it's very simple. It's because it's an even further violation. It's like the next step in violating God's design. It's an even more overt rejection. So sexual immorality in all its forms... It violates God's design for committed covenant sacrificial love but committed covenant sacrificial love is spiritual in nature it's theological in nature it's relational in nature but when you go on to homosexuality it violates even physical biology so you're not just rejecting God's design for relationships and spirituality you're rejecting God's design just for the way things physically work. It, it violates his design that sex is to be procreative. In a homosexual relationship, whether between two women or two men, there can be no life that springs forth from that activity. Instead of being procreative, homosexuality actually images death. It's not that it's just neutral, it can't create life, it does the opposite. You can look at study after study that show in large populations, it is way, way riskier to live a homosexual lifestyle. It's not even close. The average homosexual man, his life expectancy is going to be 20 to 30 years less than his heterosexual counterpart. Forgetting about religion, marriage, any of that. Just if you live a homosexual lifestyle as a man, your life expectancy will be 20 to 30 years less on average than your straight counterpart. And I don't mean to be graphic, but it's because this is not what the human body was designed to do. It's it's simple biology, and there are natural consequences. This is what Paul means when he says, men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. It's uncomfortable to talk about, but that's what it means. When you reject God's design, you're rejecting life. You're rejecting joy. You're rejecting your very purpose for existence. Now, obviously, this doesn't mean that every person who doesn't worship God is going to end up being incredibly sexually immoral and promiscuous. It, doesn't, it certainly doesn't mean that every person who doesn't worship God is going to automatically end up being homosexual in their desires. That's, that's not what he's saying. He's not talking about individuals. He's talking about the logical progression for cultures, for large populations Of people. He's saying these will be trends that characterize a society that rejects God and worships idols. These are the logical behavioral endpoints over time when a culture exchanges God for idols. And this is exactly what happened in the Roman culture. Paul is writing into a culture that was incredibly sexually immoral and had really accepted homosexuality whole scale not in the same ways that we do in our current culture but in in very similar ways and obviously we can see this playing out in real time in our own culture now one caveat i want to say is that again this this is looking at god's design for humanity on a large scale so this doesn't mean when you look at individual people in your life that you know who are either incredibly sexually immoral promiscuous but they're straight or they're homosexual and living that lifestyle that we should look at them and say oh my goodness you are, a, you are a product of God's judgment. And, and sit up on our high horse and think they're, they're terrible. That, that is not an appropriate viewpoint for Christians. We should look at all people who struggle with sin with compassion, with love. And, and we should see in ourselves the same brokenness. That's the idea. Paul's going to get into that next week. You can look at Romans chapter two. He says, don't judge others. This is about you. <laughs> this is about you. The other thing I'll say is there are so many questions for how do you love somebody who is who's living in that way? I mean, it, it is like complete heresy to say anything negative right now in our culture about homosexuality especially. So, so how can we hold the line and stand on biblical truth and be loving and winsome for all people? To this point, I would say, Definitely try to go to the Equip Conference in a couple weeks, and I'm not—I I, I don't mean that facetiously. I really think if you've not really studied this topic or looked into it, um, there are probably not <laughs> having PTSD flashbacks right now <laughs> of the time I got attacked by a wasp while preaching. It happened. Sorry, shouldn't have called attention to that. I can see a whole bunch of them in that window back there. We'll get them in between services. But uh, one thing is, so there's only about 150 spots left and those those are gonna get eaten up really quickly here in the next week or so. And tomorrow, the price goes up like 40 bucks or something. So if you were thinking about going, please get registered for that ASAP. And I think that will be so, so helpful to you in thinking through these issues, in teaching your kids on these issues, in relating to people in your life, So go to that conference. Okay. Finally, Paul says this, verse 28, and because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. If you're going to try to explain the universe without God, if you're going to try to explain the human experience and purpose of life without the God of the Bible, it's like trying to do math without numbers. That's the idea. You're going to just end up with gobbledygook. It's just going to be nonsense that's paul's point how how do you end up with an entire culture that is rejected absolute truth which is what we have people say well this is my truth that's true for me and that's your truth that's true for you and i say well what if my truth says that your truth is wrong (laughs) you know how does that work it's incoherent this is how you end up with an entire culture that calls good evil and evil good it is a corrupted thinking verse 29 they're filled with all unrighteousness evil greed And wickedness and on and on verse 32 although they know god's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die they know it's wrong in their heart they not only do them but even applaud others who practice them this is the progression and you you can see this playing out over the course of the last 20 30 50 years this is the way it works this is what we see happening in real time in our culture first you must tolerate evil to be accepted by the culture you want to be a good person? You want to be accepted? you got to be tolerant. That's what it was 20 years ago. Then, you must celebrate evil to be accepted by the culture. You have, to, you have to have the pride flag in your signature line, in your email. You have to celebrate it. It's not enough just to tolerate it. You have to be on the team. You have to be applauding the behavior. And the next step in the progression is you must participate in the evil to be accepted by the culture. And I would say we're somewhere right in between, celebrating and participating. What's the point? Paul's point here, again, is you must be saved. That's the point. The point is not for us to sit on our high horse and judge our culture. This is here to help you sense your own depravity. That's the point. The point is that the same idolatry that causes humanity to descend into utter chaos lives in you. That's the point. You are broken and infected by sin. You love and worship things that are not God. And maybe you're not living in overt sexual immorality, although maybe some of you are. Either way, your problem is not with behavior. Ultimately, it's with worship. Two points of application just to close. Number one, understand that idols cannot be removed. They can only be replaced. They cannot be removed. They can only be replaced. So if you are worshiping something other than God, there's one solution. You must love, trust, and obey Him. That's it. You must love, trust, and obey Him. And you can only do that. That's only possible because of the gospel. It's only possible because of the good news that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1. So God's wrath is revealed against humanity because we exchange the truth of God for a lie. We exchange the glory of God for some idol. The good news, the gospel, is that God also made an exchange. God gave his only begotten Son, gave his life for you. Jesus, he took your, he made a trade, an exchange. He said, your sin, your unrighteousness, all of your guilt, I'll get that. That's what I get. What you get is his righteousness, his holiness. On the cross, Jesus died to make you clean, to make you acceptable to God, to make you fit for a relationship with someone who's holy. But you have to trust in him. You must receive that righteousness in faith. You can be forgiven. You can be given eternal life. That is the good news of the gospel. And when you believe that, it's almost impossible not to worship him. (laughs) What's more valuable than that? I can know God. I can be acceptable to God. I can have a relationship with God. I can have the spirit of God in me. I can participate in his divine nature. I mean, what in the world? What could be better than that? Number two, understand the true nature of God and idols. Idols can never satisfy. Proverbs twenty-seven twenty says this, Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied. That's, that's the grave. He says, death is never satisfied and people's eyes are never satisfied. You cannot find what you're looking for in this world You were made to be satisfied only by the Lord Jesus Christ. Idols can never satisfy. God is the only thing that can satisfy. Jesus said in John 4, verse 13, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Brothers and sisters, the only thing that can satisfy your soul is the Lord Jesus. The only thing. And until you believe that, worshiping God consistently will be almost impossible. Because if in your heart what you believe is, man, if I just get this amount of money, if I just buy that piece of land, (laughs) you know, if if I just save up to go on this vacation, if I could just get my kids to behave this way, then everything would be great. Then you won't worship him. And it's not that you shouldn't pursue those things, but you have to know deep in your soul, I'm not going to be impressed by that. If I get it, good. But unless it points you more to Him, unless it points your kids more to Him, unless it helps you walk in obedience and trust and affection towards Him, then you shouldn't pursue it. Or you need to pursue it in a different way or to a different degree because only He can satisfy you. Let's pray. Father, thank You for giving us life god thank you for putting us on this planet allowing us to draw our next breath god thank you for your patience we so often don't worship you god there's probably people here this morning who've never worshipped you truly inwardly and yet we're still here (laughs) God, You haven't judged us yet. We we aren't experiencing Your wrath yet. There's hope for each one of us. And God, I pray that You'd help us to see Your glory. God, if we have foolishly exchanged Your glory for a lie, that we would stop. We would turn from that thing and we would replace it with You. We would worship You. We would trust You. We would serve You. And God, when we do that, you're not the one who benefits we are the one the ones who benefit we get joy we get strength we get life we get unity we get clarity we get wisdom direction we see the world rightly we get real hope for the future because we know that this life is so temporary and then we're going to be with you satisfied fully forever worshiping in heaven God, I just pray that you'd help us to see that more clearly. I pray that you would help us to see the good news of the gospel and reorient our hearts. Aim all of our love at you. Help us. We pray we're we're weak. <laughs> God,